First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 23? We have been working our way verse by verse through the book of Acts this past year. And now we are halfway through this final series in the book of Acts called The Adventure. Uh, I know that this is going to date me a little bit, but when I hear that name, Adventure, uh, there is only one song that I think about. I know that there are many who are here who uh, perhaps did not uh, grow up in church. I know we all have different stories, and uh, for some of you who did not grow up in, in church, you perhaps missed out on some of the greatest music ever composed, the sweet sounds of the early 1990s contemporary Christian music. And um, I'm sure, though, that I am not alone, that there are others who are here who were youth groupers back in the 90s who will recognize this song. I'm going to play about 10 seconds of this. It doesn't even have the title in it, but we're going to test and see how many here recognize it. Let's listen to it. All right, who knows it? Yell it out if you know the title. The, that's right, Stephen Curtis Chapman, SC Squared, The Great Adventure. And I know everybody probably under the age of 20, maybe even 30, is like, that sounds like the cheesiest thing I have ever heard. But I'm telling you, back in the day, we rocked out to that song. I mean, I thought that song was the coolest thing. And, you know, the lyrics of that song really do remind me a lot of what is going on in the book of Acts. The lyrics say this, saddle up your horses, we've got a trail to blaze through the wild blue yonder of God's amazing grace. Let's follow our leader into the glorious unknown. This is life like no other. This is the great adventure. And you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman is right. The Christian life really is a great adventure. In fact, that's the subtitle of this series. There's no more exciting life than the life spent following Jesus. Uh, that's part of why I'm so excited about uh, what happened this past week at Vacation Bible School. 35 young people, 35 boys and girls who surrender their life uh, to Jesus, and they have a great adventure in front of them, don't they? They have their whole life in front of them to follow the Lord. Uh, we don't even know the things that God has in store for them, how God wants to use them, possibly all over the world, for His purposes and for His kingdom. And of course, it isn't just children that God has an adventure planned out for. God has an adventure for every single one of us. You know, don't ever think uh, that your time is past, uh, that God cannot use you now. If, if, if you woke up this morning and you had air in your lungs and your heart was beating in your chest, then God wants to use you today for his glory he wants to take us on a day-by-day -day adventure of following the Lord Jesus. A few minutes ago, we heard the story read for us from God's Word of this part of Paul's life. And it was pretty exciting. And really, Paul's life has been pretty exciting for quite a while now. This guy had a lot of stuff happen to him in his life. 
Uh, even last week, we, we saw people spotted him as he was walking through the temple in Jerusalem. They started yelling stuff about him that was not true. The crowds believed it, though. They grabbed Paul. They drug him down to the ground. They began to beat him until the Roman soldiers came and rescued him. They had to actually lift him up and carry him to get him away from the crowd. But then Paul asked, could you set me down, please, so I could preach a sermon to this mob? And so they set him down, and he preaches the sermon. By the end of the sermon, they're even madder than at the beginning, and so he has to be rescued again. Then the Roman commander wants to get information out of him by scourging him, and he's about to do that until he finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen. So all of this has already happened to Paul. And then we heard in the story for today, and just kind of to hit the highlights, right, they bring him out, they set him in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and they get so heated with each other, they kind of forget Paul is there, uh, but they get so heated that the Romans have to come and rescue him yet again. And then we find out there is a group of more than 40 uh, Jews who take a vow Uh, that they're not going to eat until they have wiped Paul off the face of the earth. So he has to be sent 70 miles away. He is accompanied by almost 500 Roman troops just to keep him alive. (laughs) Like I said, Paul's life was quite an adventure. It had a lot of ups and downs in it, had a lot of close calls in it. But I really believe the key verse in this passage for today is Acts 23, verse 11. Look at that verse with me. The following night... The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. We'll unpack that verse a little more later on. I know that this is a particular promise made to a particular man about God's plan for his life. But there is a biblical truth in this verse for all of us. Because God has told all of us that he is working all things together for our good. If we love him, if we've been called according to his purpose, we know God has told all of us that he has good works prepared in advance for us to walk in them. And so we can rest on this truth as well, that the adventure that God has created us for, that he has saved us for, and that he has sent us to do, will be completed, that nothing that the enemy plans will stop what God has planned for us. Yes, we have an enemy who is working against us. We can see that in Paul's story as well. But our God is the sovereign king over everything, isn't he? He is in control. And so church, we can trust that his plans will be completed. All we need to do is keep our eyes on him And keep on going with the grace that he provides. And so today, as we think about this adventure that God has planned for each of us, here's a few reminders from this story. And and the first reminder we really need to take in, God uses imperfect people like all of us. I pray that'll be an encouraging truth for us to think about together. In the very last verse of chapter 22, verse 30, The Roman commander Claudius Elysius is still trying to get to the bottom of why the Jewish crowds were so upset with Paul. He couldn't get that information by scourging him now that he knew he was a Roman citizen. And so he decided to call an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin. 
Now those were the 70 uh, top Jewish religious leaders, and he sets Paul in front of them. And so that's the scene at the beginning of chapter 23. Paul is standing in front of these 70 Jewish leaders in, in, in a kind of pre-trial hearing. Paul looks intently at them, verse 1 says. He probably recognized a few of their faces, having grown up in the same circles with them. And then he opens with these words in verse 1 of chapter 23. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, he did not mean by that, of course, that he had been sinless throughout his life or even sinless from the time that he had become a Christian, but he meant that he had been faithful to the calling that God had placed upon his life to testify to him. But the Jewish high priest heard those words and was so enraged by them that uh, he lost it. He went over the edge and he commanded Paul uh, to be hit, to be struck in the face. A little background on this particular high priest. Uh, His name was Ananias. He was known to be one of the worst high priests that Israel ever had. Uh, He was greedy. He was cruel. He was violent. He was so bad, in fact, that about 10 years after this, his own people, some of the Jewish people, put him to death when they rebelled against the Romans. Now, this wasn't really out of character for this particular individual, but it still was, of course, against the law of God to uh, hit someone, to strike someone who had not been convicted of any crime. Uh, But what Ananias did in commanding Paul to be struck like that really fired Paul up as well. You can see that in verse 3. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewash wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Calling him a whitewashed wall reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, where he referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. You might remember that, and I believe that's the image here. It's the image of hypocrisy. He's saying, you're all whitewashed on the outside. You look nice and pretty on the outside, but inside you are dead. Inside you are rotten. You are filthy. That's what Paul was saying. Now, there's, there's some debate about this, and I believe that while it is understandable that Paul was upset, and of course, what he said about this individual was accurate I believe that Paul was still in the wrong with the way that he spoke to the high priest. After all, in John chapter 18, Jesus was in exactly the same situation with exactly the same group of people, the Sanhedrin. And he was commanded to be struck in the face. But he did not respond the way that Paul did. In fact, Peter wrote about how Jesus responded in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so Paul, as godly as a man as he was, did not respond in this situation in the manner that Jesus responded. He, I believe, let his anger get the best of him. And the crowd calls him out on that. They said, is that the way to talk to the high priest? And to his credit, in verse 5, Paul immediately acknowledges his wrong. Now, he starts out by saying, I did not know that it was a high priest. There's been a lot of debate about that as well. Some people think that Paul was being sarcastic, that he was saying, well, I didn't know he was a high priest because he sure isn't acting like one. 
Uh, Other people think that uh, perhaps uh, Paul did not hear who it was who spoke, or some people think his thorn in the flesh was actually poor eyesight and that he might not have been able to recognize the high priest because of that. But I think the simplest explanation is probably the best, and that is that Paul had not been in Jerusalem for quite some time. And he probably did not know who the high priest was in terms of recognizing him by appearance. Because this was an informal trial, the high priest was likely not wearing his, uh, his robes and things that would mark him off as being the high priest. And so Paul says, I did not recognize him, but when he was made aware that he was speaking to the high priest, again, he acknowledges his wrong. He quotes from the book of Exodus and says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You know, just as an aside here, I do believe that we as parents need to be teaching our children that the God-honoring thing to do is to speak with respect to people who are in positions of authority in their lives. Even if those individuals may be guilty of wrongdoing as the high priest was guilty of it here, but when we're speaking to a teacher, when we're speaking to a coach or anyone in a position of authority, we honor God when we honor them. And when we speak to them, we speak about them in a respectful way. Well, Paul admits that he failed to do that here. You know, just in general, I love the fact that the Bible does not put capes on its heroes. Now, certainly, Paul was one of the greatest heroes uh, in the pages of Scripture, and yet he is not presented to us as being perfect. Uh, he certainly was not perfect before he met Christ. He was about as far from God as he could be, right, as he is hunting down Christians and throwing them into prison. But he's not even presented as being perfect after he meets uh, the Lord Jesus. He's still a sinner. And, and I think that's important for us to take in because sometimes we can put Paul on such a high pedestal that we can read through the book of Acts and take almost nothing from it. Uh, we can say, well, of course, you know, Paul was able to do that, but that's because he's a superstar. That's because he's perfect. That's because he doesn't do anything wrong. And yet we see here that's not the case. Thankfully, the qualification for God to use people is not perfection. Because if it was, he wouldn't be able to use any of us, would he? But thankfully, our God specializes in using imperfect people like you and me and Paul to accomplish his will. After Paul's interaction with the high priest, verse 6 tells us what happens next. It says, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when Paul says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, doesn't necessarily mean that his father was a Pharisee, but he does mean that he grew up in the tradition of the Pharisees, the Pharisaic tradition and education and upbringing. Of course, at one time he was a Pharisee, and even now he's willing to identify as being a Pharisee to a point. That doesn't mean he affirms everything that these Pharisees believe, but he is identifying with them in one particular theological belief that they had, which some of the other members of the Sanhedrin did not have, and that is the belief in the resurrection of the body. If you look down in verse 8, Luke explains to any of his readers who may not be familiar with who the Sadducees are and who the Pharisees are, he explains to us the major theological difference between them that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection 
and the Sadducees did not. By, by the way, that is the way that you can remember who the Sadducees are. Uh, they are sad you see because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? I know that is cheesy as rip, but once you hear that once, you won't forget who this group of people was. What ends up happening though, after Paul says, I am being judged because of my belief in the resurrection. What ends up happening after that is pretty comical because these two groups that made up the high court, Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they get so heated arguing with each other about the resurrection, they almost entirely forget that Paul is standing there and that he's the one on trial. In fact, by the end, some of the Pharisees are defending Paul. They're saying he's not such a bad guy. He believes some of the same things we believe. Maybe an angel or a spirit did talk to him after all. And so it's a strange turn of events. But there's been a lot of debate about this, about whether that was actually what Paul intended all along. In other words, when he said this, when he said, I'm on trial because of my belief in the resurrection, was he saying that because it's such a crucial truth that has to be believed in order to receive Jesus? Or was this just a clever ploy on Paul's part to get these two sides fighting and forget about him? I think there might be a little bit of truth in both of those positions. Certainly the topic of the resurrection is not some side matter. He's bringing up the very crux of the issue. For any of those who were there that day to become a Christian, they needed to come to a point of believing that Jesus died for their sins and he rose again. And so he's bringing up not a side matter, he's bringing up the most important matter to their attention. But I also think Paul knew this group of people well enough to know exactly where this was going to go when he brought this topic up. I don't know if you have any friends maybe and you... You know, there's just something, a, a, a topic that we, they always fight about. Maybe you got some buddies who are basketball fans. One of them thinks LeBron James is the best player ever. The other thinks that Michael Jordan is. And all you have to do is just bring that topic up. You know, maybe LeBron is the best. And they go at it for the next 20 minutes. Maybe you've got some friends, you know, one of them uh, likes to eat at Popeye's and one of them likes to eat at Chick-fil-A. In other words, you've got one saved friend and one unregenerate friend, you know, <laughs> together. And, and all you got to do is bring up the best chicken sandwich, and they're, they're going to be off for the next 30 minutes arguing about that. Well, you know, I think some of our uh, kids, I've noticed kind of with big brothers and big sisters, they kind of know what gets their younger siblings going, right? They just got to bring a certain topic up, and off they go. Well, I think Paul kind of knew where this was going to head. He kind of knew that this conversation would not go so well, and he was right. Again, they got so heated, things got so out of hand that in verse 10, the Roman commander comes and he rescues Paul again. He takes him back to the barracks. But that night at the barracks, Paul would receive a special visit that would really lift him up. We've seen the first reminder. God uses imperfect people like all of us. Here's the second reminder. God gives intimate care to each of us. And he knows when we need it the most. Look again at verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You know, I can only imagine how Paul probably felt that night as he laid his head down in the Roman barracks there at the Antonia Fortress there in Jerusalem. Think about the things he had been through. He had been lied about. He had been beaten. He had had to be rescued and carried out of a mob. Every time he preached lately, it seems like nothing good came of it at all. Uh, nobody got saved as far as he could tell. People just got mad at him. 
People were just angrier and angrier with him, ready to kill him. He had a dream of going to Rome, but at this point he probably thought, I'm, I'm not that likely to make it out of Jerusalem alive. I'm sure all of these thoughts were going through his head as he laid his head down. But that night, verse 11 says, the Lord came and stood by him. And the Lord said to him, be of good cheer, Paul. You know, that phrase, be of good cheer, really comes from one Greek word that is often translated, take courage. And it's a word that in the New Testament only shows up, shows up on the lips of Jesus. He uses it five times. One time he uses it with a paralytic. He told him to take courage because his sins were forgiven. He uses it with the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. He tells her to take courage. He uses it with his disciples when they were in the boat in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, take courage. He used it the night before he went to the cross in the upper room. He told his disciples, take courage because I have overcome the world. And now for the fifth time, he says it to the Apostle Paul, take courage. I love how one person put it. They said, this is Christ's word for all who are trying to serve him, however feebly they may be doing it. When Jesus came and stood by Paul that night, I think there were a few things that he wanted Paul to understand. They're the same things that he wants us to know this morning as well. I've adapted this list from Pastor Tony Marita. I found it to be so helpful, and I pray that you will as well. First of all, God wants us to know that he is with us that he is with us. Paul may have felt alone. He may have felt like there was nobody to support him. Sometimes we get to feeling that way too, like we don't have anybody's help, like nobody understands the trials that we are facing. But God wants you to know today that he is with you. If you know the Lord Jesus, he is in you. You may feel like you're in a fire right now, but you know, so were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there was a fourth man with them in the fire. And that same one who is with them in the fire is with you in the fire right now. God wants you to know I'm with you. But he also wants us to know that he is for us. So he's with us, but he's also for us. And my son Silas's favorite Bible verse speaks to this truth. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord told, told Paul, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. Think for a minute about how encouraging just that was to hear. He probably felt like nothing that I have said has made any difference whatsoever. They're not even listening to me. All they want to do is kill me when I'm done talking. But Jesus said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what their response is. What matters is you have been faithful to testify about me in Jerusalem. You have done what I sent you here to do we're on mission with the Lord and we're serving the Lord. We need to understand it doesn't matter who comes against us because God is for us. And then also God wants us to know that he is not finished with us. Paul may have started to wonder about that. He may have started to wonder if he was at the end of the line. But the Lord said no. You testified about me in Jerusalem and you have this dream of testifying about me in Rome and that dream is gonna be fulfilled. You are going to get there. Think about what an encouragement that would have been for Paul over the next two years. 
as he sat in, in, in prison cell after prison cell, as he waited for different trials to come, as he got on a ship, ended up having a shipwreck, right? Think about all the things that happened between now and the end of the book of Acts. And during all of this time, Paul could go back and hang his hat on this one night and this, this appearance of the Lord to him in that Roman barracks where the Lord said, Paul, you are going to testify about me in Rome no matter what. I wonder if someone here today needs to hear that, that God isn't finished with you yet. Maybe you're in your later years and you've started to wonder, you know, maybe I've passed the point of being useful in the kingdom of God. Hear your Lord saying to you today, I'm not finished with you yet. I still have work for you to do. The adventure isn't over just yet. There's still people that I've placed in your life that I want you to testify about me too. Maybe you're here and you've been pursuing ministry or, or missions or some other dream God's put in your heart to serve him, but there's been roadblocks along the way and things didn't turn out like you've expected and it just kind of feels like you're spinning your wheels at times. God sees where you are. You know, sometimes his will for us doesn't go in a straight line. Sometimes it doesn't go in our timetable. Sometimes in the end, it doesn't even look like what we thought it was going to look like at the beginning. But God wants you to hear today, you will testify about me everywhere that I have planned for you to testify about me at. Know today that nothing will stand in the way of what I have planned for you. That really leads to the last reminder we need to hear today. Not only does God use imperfect people not only does he give each of us his intimate personal care, but also he has infinite means at his disposal to preserve and propel us forward on our mission. Again, the adventure that God has planned for us cannot be thwarted by any scheme of man or any scheme of Satan because God is sovereign over everything. He has infinite, limitless resources at his disposal to propel us forward. And he can use absolutely anything that he wants, can he? To accomplish his purposes in our life. Just think about the things that he used right here in this one little part of Paul's story. He had promised Paul, you're going to get to Rome. You're going to testify about me in Rome. In this one little part of his story, look at all the things that God used to make that happen. First of all, we've already seen that God can use rivals to bring about his will. We saw that in verses 6 through 10. He used these two different camps in the Sanhedrin, right? The Sadducees and the Pharisees and their theological disagreements. He used that to get Paul out of that situation. Secondly, we can see that God also can use relatives. And we see that in verses 12 through 22. In fact, if you look specifically at verses 12 and 13, it talks about these Jews, more than 40 of them, who had made a little pact. They took a vow. The word that's used there means they, they literally put a curse on themselves if they did not fulfill the vow. They likely use the language that you read in the Old Testament. The Lord do also to me, or the Lord do to me and more also if, in this case, if we don't kill Paul before we've had anything to eat or drink. Uh, I'm thinking that since they said we're not going to eat and drink until we've done this, that they planned on moving pretty quickly, don't you? Because most of us like to eat just about every day or a few times a day. 
And I know that they were moving quickly because it says in verses 14 and 15, they went to some of the members of the Sanhedrin, not to the Pharisees, mind you, who had showed some sympathy for Paul, but to the Sadducees. And they enlisted them in this little plan. They said, what we want you to do is to go to the Roman commander, ask him to send Paul back tomorrow, say that you want to interview him a second time. But don't worry, you don't have to come up with any interview questions because before he gets there, we're going to take him out. And it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but the impression that you get is that these religious leaders signed off on the plan. And so these people who were charging Paul with violating the law of God were willing to violate the law of God themselves and to become co-conspirators to commit murder. Apparently they were a little too free in their conversations about their plans because they did not notice a young man who was listening to everything that they were saying. And this young man just happened to be, of course he didn't happen to be, it was in God's sovereignty that he was, Paul's nephew. Now this is actually the only thing we know about Paul's family. It comes from this verse. We know that Paul had a sister. And we know that his sister had a son. And we know that they lived in Jerusalem, at least at this particular point in time. Now, we don't know if Paul shared the Lord with them. I can't imagine that he didn't. But we don't know. Perhaps he had led his sister to the Lord. Perhaps he had led his nephew uh, to the Lord. Now, there's a lot of things we wish that we knew that we don't know. But we do know that this, this young man had enough love in his heart for Uncle Paul that when he heard this story, this pact that these guys had come up with to kill him, he went straight to Paul. We don't know how old he was. He could have been a teenager. Perhaps he was even younger because it says that when he made it to the commanding officer, the commanding officer, it says, took him by the hand. Kind of suggests he might have even been a younger boy, but this commander listens to what he had to say, and he tells the boy not to tell anyone else about what he had disclosed. Again, the Lord had promised that he would get Paul safely to Rome But the Lord used the actions of different people to bring that about, didn't he? In this case, he used the nephew of the year, right, to foil an assassination attempt. But the Lord can use anything. We've seen he can use rivals. We've seen he can use relatives. And then lastly, we see in this story, he can even use the Romans. The Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, takes this threat against Paul's life very, very seriously. In fact, so seriously, he sets aside an escort of 200 elite soldiers, 70 horsemen, cavalrymen, and then another 200 spearmen or javelin throwers. Now, altogether in Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias only had at his disposal 1,000 troops. And he just designated almost half of them, 470 of them, to leave Jerusalem to escort one man and to make sure he made it safely where he was going. The last thing he wanted was for a Roman citizen to die in his custody. And then in verses 25 to 30, that's interesting. This is something you wouldn't expect to find in the Bible, but here it is. A letter from from one Roman official to another Roman official. And my favorite part about this letter is how hard he tries to make himself look good. Uh, do you notice that? You know the story if you've read the story before this. He, he leaves out a lot of things, right? He leaves out how, you know, originally I thought he was an Egyptian assassin, found out I was wrong about that. He, he leaves out the fact that he almost scourged a Roman citizen without finding out that he was one. 
In fact, he makes it sound like he learned he was a Roman citizen right at the beginning of the story. So it just kind of adds a little human touch. He's writing to his superior officer, and he wants to put himself in the best possible light that he can. My favorite part of this letter, though, excuse me, the most important part of the letter, though, is in verse 29, where he says, Paul has done nothing deserving of chains or death. In other words, he says he is innocent. And of course, he was. The soldiers left at about nine o'clock that night. They traveled throughout the night under cover of darkness. It was a 70-mile journey to Caesarea. They stopped at a halfway point, the city of Antipatris, which is about 35 miles away. And being that far away from Jerusalem, the risk of attack was much lower. And so the next day, many of the troops were able to go back, but the horsemen, the 70 horsemen, accompanied Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea by the sea. I love how one person put it. They said they assumed that they were transporting a prisoner, but really God was transporting his preacher right where he wanted him to be, one step closer to Rome. The horsemen got there to Caesarea. They delivered the letter. They delivered Paul. Felix read the letter. He determined he had jurisdiction to hear Paul's case, and then he had Paul wait in his house called Herod's Praetorium, which had been built by Herod the Great. And he said to wait there until your accusers come from Jerusalem with the formal charges. We'll read that part of the story next week. But again, what we see in this story is that God can use anything he wants to bring about his will so that we will complete the adventure that he has planned for us. Kenneth Gangle put it like this, sometimes God delivers his children by the simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the Calvary, but at all times he is ultimately in charge. And that's not just the case with Paul, that's the case with every single one of us who is called by his name. Again, the main truth today, look at this truth again, the adventure God has created us for, saved us for, and sent us on will be completed. Nothing the enemy plans will stop what God has planned for us. Now, really, that truth ties in very well with what our children learned this past week at Vacation Bible School. The memory verse of the week that every one of our children learned the last five days is this, Philippians 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started in us. He's going to finish the adventure that he has planned for us. We may feel sometimes like our efforts are feeble. We may feel sometimes like we're all alone, like Paul did. But church, we just need to keep on going for the Lord, knowing that he is with us, knowing that he is able to see us through. I came across the story this week of a famous pianist named Paderewski, who was set to perform a concert in a great concert hall here in America. It was a black tie event, and the concert hall was packed with people who were eagerly anticipating this great world-renowned pianist taking the stage and performing. But in the audience that night, there was one woman there who had a little nine-year-old son with her, and he was pretty squirmy in his chair. He didn't really want to be at this formal event. He'd rather be out playing baseball or something. She made him come. 
And her hope was that maybe he'll be inspired by hearing this great pianist and he'll want to practice the piano more at home. But when his mom looked away and was talking with some of the other people who were there, he saw his opportunity and that great grand Steinway piano that was there on the stage was calling to him. And so he crawled up onto the stage and no one was kind of paying any attention to him. He walked over, he sat down at the bench and he saw the black and white keys there and he, he started playing the only song he knew, Chopsticks. And he started playing it. Everybody in the crowd heard it, of course. Then they direct their attention to him. They see little boys run up on the stage. Some of them start yelling at him to get down, to come off the stage. But backstage, Paderewski heard the music too. He heard the little boy playing chopsticks and he, thinking quickly on his feet, he grabbed his coat, he put it on, he went out to the piano, he stood behind the child and he put his arms around him on either side of his on the piano and he started playing a counter melody to the chopstick song that the boy was playing. And then he whispered in the boy's ear, just don't stop playing. Just keep going, just keep playing. And together, the two of them played a beautiful, beautiful song. You know, God has given each of us a song to play. He has given each of us a mission, an adventure to experience. Sometimes I know we feel like we don't have what it takes. Sometimes we feel like our efforts are feeble, that they're not making a difference. Sometimes we feel like what we're playing sounds a little bit more like chopsticks than it does like Chopin, but we are not alone. The master is with us. The master has his arms around our arms. He is adding to the melody. He is lifting us up. He is turning it and transforming it into beautiful music. And he's saying the same thing in our ears. He's saying, just keep playing. Don't stop. Don't quit. I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your head. I want to ask you right now, if you know the Lord in a personal way, as he's calling us today through his word to trust him, to trust his plan, to trust that he will get us to Rome. He will get us to where his plan is to take us. We don't have to know the plan. We just have to trust that he does. But I want you to think about right now one area of your life where you don't know the plan and you wish you did. And I want you just to talk to the Lord about that and tell him that you trust him. Tell him that you know that he's with you, that he know, you know that he's for you. You know that he's not finished with you. Take a minute and talk with him. to stand with me if you would and maybe you're here today and you'd say you know the area where I need to trust the Lord I, I need to trust him with my whole life I, I don't know how you came today maybe somebody invited you today maybe you just saw the sign this week decided you would come but God is speaking to you you know that your life is, is not where you want it to be you know that you're broken you know that you need the Savior and you've heard today how much he loves you. You've heard today how he died for your sins on the cross, how he rose again on the third day. And he invites you to come to him to find forgiveness, to find life, find joy. And I wanna invite you right now to come to speak with me, speak with one of the other pastors here. If you 
want to take that step to trust God with your whole heart, your whole life. Maybe one of our children is here who this week put their faith in Jesus. And you want to just come with your parents and say, I want to make that decision public, that I want to follow Christ the rest of my life. Let's sing to him. Let's sing to the Lord about how we need him each and every day.